So there are two readings this evening. Uh, first, we're reading from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the first 10 verses, and then we'll be turning to, to James chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then turning to James chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, it's a great joy for us to have tonight with us Dr. Peter Saunders, who many of you may have heard, who's frequently on the media, on the radio, television, uh, talking about medical issues in particular. He's the general director of the Christian Medical Fellowship, and I think certainly as his first visit to talk to us at these lectures, we are delighted you said yes to come. We do look forward to what you have to say. He's talking to us under the title, Faith and Action. I wanted to start with a quote, maybe familiar to you. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God 
except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing him, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Now this famous quote has been attributed to Martin Luther by Christian commentators as illustrious as Francis Schaeffer over the last 40 years, but as argued, I think convincingly, by Carl Wieland, it actually comes from a 19th century novel referring to Luther, written by Elizabeth Rundle Charles, called The Chronicles of the Schoenberg uh, Cotter Family. However, according to Wieland, Luther did actually say something very similar to this. He said that if people were publicly open about every other aspect of their Christian faith, but chose not to admit their belief on some single point of doctrine for fear of what might happen to them if their conviction on that one point became known, they were effectively denying Christ, period. As Christians, we're fighting in a spiritual battle, but Martin Luther's point is that not all of God's truth is equally under attack at any one time. In any culture and generation, there are certain truths which are more under attack than others. And as Christians in the 21st century, we need, uh, in Britain, we need to be aware of which Christian truth is most under attack and to ensure that we are faithful in standing for that truth. There are some Christian causes which in Britain today might even be called politically correct. If you campaign, for example, to end child poverty, to care for trees in the Amazon rainforest, to fight cancer, to combat child sex abuse, to clamp down on loan sharks, or to curb human trafficking, you'll find yourself in a large, like-minded company of both believers and unbelievers. Uh, this doesn't mean that these are not important causes for which Christians should fight, because they are. But my point is that few, if any, will publicly oppose you for making a stand on them. Especially in the church, you'll find many allies who will stand uh, with you. And it's terribly important that Christians and churches, particularly at a time of economic recession, are moving into things like food bank provision, debt counselling, street pastoring, and so on. The needs are great and we should be involved. But if we restrict ourselves to those areas of Christian service that our society applauds, then we actually are being selective in our discipleship. Luther would say even that we're denying Christ. Most unbelievers are very accepting of Christians who support popular causes. And it's, it's tempting to imagine that if we're being good and faithful Christians, everyone will like us. But Jesus actually said exactly the opposite. The Bible reminds us that everyone who genuinely seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
in one way or another. It was the false prophets, Jesus said, that everyone spoke well of. We must ensure that our only offence is that of the gospel, but often in the Christian walk, opposition is a sign that we're doing a good job rather than a bad job. Many people hated Jesus simply because he spoke truth that people did not want to hear. That's precisely why he was crucified. Likewise, when we speak the same truth, some people will dislike us, perhaps even hate us uh, as well. Persecution began for the early church when Peter, John and Stephen opened their mouths and started to speak. And we must, of course, speak the truth in love. But how often do we use sensitivity simply as an excuse for cowardice when our real underlying motive is actually to avoid being persecuted for the cross uh, of Christ? Now, the high-profile cases involving Christians getting into trouble with the law or governing authorities in Britain, with which we're all very familiar, tend to involve a limited number of issues. Homosexuality is a particularly common theme, whether it's a couple running a bed and breakfast who wish to ensure that their clientele sharing a double room are married, or whether it's street preachers addressing moral issues, or an Oxford student making casual remarks about a policeman's horse, it's a common theme. When it comes to Christian doctors being hauled up before NHS trusts or being complained about to the General Medical Council or other authorities or being the subject of court proceedings, it's similarly a small number of issues that tend to feature. If a Christian doctor wishes to opt out of abortion, for example, or being a medical advisor on gay adoption, or expresses views about these issues, or attempts to share the gospel with a patient or a colleague, then there are real risks of losing one's reputation, possibly job, uh, or even license to practice in today's environment. If you publicly express biblical views on subjects like abortion, euthanasia, or, or sex, you can become very unpopular indeed. Last year, in response to some questioning on Twitter, I hope that's a, an area probably that you don't frequent, I wouldn't advise it, but I expressed in simple terms what I regard to be an orthodox Christian view of sex. Uh, in response to a question, I said, all people are sinners, and also all sex outside marriage is morally wrong. And uh, in response to another question, uh, specifically I said sex between two people of the same sex, male or female, is always wrong. My responses were then uh, retweeted by an atheist doctor who was also gay to several thousand of his followers and I was buried for several hours under a barrage of the most unpleasant abuse you can possibly imagine. I was recently out for a meal with a friend with whom I have a fair degree in common who told me that he disagreed with me about three things. While I was inwardly shaking my head with astonishment at only three, <laughs> my friend informed me that the three things in question were abortion, assisted suicide and 
homosexuality, uh, specifically homosexual practice. My own view, as you might uh, possibly guess, is that abortion-assisted suicide and homosexual practice are not uh, good ideas. But the friend in question, an evangelical Christian and a Bible college lecturer, felt strongly that there was a place for Christian involvement in all three. Uh, these views are not unusual. The Evangelical Alliance surveyed 17,000 evangelicals, mainly at conferences like New Wine and Spring Harvest in 2010, and they published the results in January the following year. And amongst the questions were one on each of these three issues, and a very wide range of views were expressed. 63% of British evangelicals did not agree that abortion can never be justified. 40% did not agree that assisted suicide is always wrong. 27% did not agree that homosexual actions are always wrong, just over one in four. Now remember that these are conference-going evangelicals and probably represent, therefore, a more committed section of the evangelical population in Britain. When Richard Dawkins' Foundation for Reason and Science uh, found, uh, carried out a poll just last year of those who called themselves or self-identified as Christians, 62% favoured a woman's right to have an abortion within the legal time limit. 46% did not disapprove of sexual relationships between two adults of the same sex. 23% believed that sex between a man and a woman was only acceptable within marriage. That's one in four. And 74%, and the Christian Institute won't like this, believe that religion should not influence public policy. So why is it that so many Christians now have views on these issues that would have been considered anathema just a generation ago? It's a very interesting question. Well, first, and perhaps obviously, the prevailing culture has shifted hugely on these questions. And the, and the so-called mountains of culture, and I'm talking about those uh, things that most influence the shape and direction of our culture, parliament, the universities, uh, institutions, law, science, media, arts, entertainment, are increasingly dominated by people with an atheist worldview. And this new liberal elite, if you like, believes that God doesn't exist, that death is the end, and that moral values are relative to every individual. But in practice, most adopt the ethics of what we call secular humanism. And undoubtedly, this whole cultural change has infected or affected the church as well. Secondly, uh, as I've already alluded to, taking a traditional view on these issues now carries a cost that it did not have a generation ago. In 2012, Christians in Parliament, an official all-party parliamentary group chaired by Gary Streeter MP, launched an inquiry called Clearing the Ground, which was tasked with considering the question, are Christians marginalised within the UK? And its main conclusion was that Christians in the UK face problems in living out their faith. And these problems have mostly been caused and exacerbated, made worse, by social, cultural and legal changes over the last decade. So they were saying these changes are very 
recent, particularly the legal changes, and we're talking about things like the Equality Act. There's loss of reputation, job and income to consider now with certain Christian beliefs and behaviours, and the Christian Institute has uh, brought some of these issues to public attention. Thirdly, some Christian leaders with large followings have changed their position on these issues. The Bishop of Liverpool, uh, James Jones, and, and Baptist Minister Steve Chalk are two uh, examples of prominent Christian leaders who've come out just this year in support of the church affirming monogamous gay sexual partnerships. There's intense speculation that the Church of England's Pilling Report, which is about to be published, will recommend the same thing. We need to wait and see. And then fourth, there's been a huge decline in Bible reading and study generally, and in Bible teaching specifically. This year I was asked for the very first time in 20 years of ministry with CMF to lead a seminar on abortion at a leading London Evangelical Church. First time I'd ever been asked to speak on this issue in a London Evangelical Church. We were told, and I took along with me my head of public policy, we were told that it was being widely advertised through home groups and, that, and through the over 30 full-time workers in a congregation of over 1,000 people. 12 people turned up. I learned later that the poor attendance was due to the fact that the leadership had not thought it important enough to advertise. Last week I was asked by the editor of a major denomination's minister's magazine to write an article on the biblical case against euthanasia. He was concerned that many ministers in his uh, well-known Bible-believing denomination were of the view that euthanasia in hard cases was a genuine act of Christian mercy. But while these four factors play a part in accounting for what I'd call ethical drift amongst Christians, I think the real reasons are much more deeply theological. And I would attribute them to two uh, destructive uh, wrong beliefs. One affecting liberal evangelical congregations and one affecting conservative evangelical Congregations In both groups are many who actually know their Bibles very well, but who are increasingly adopting ethical views that are much closer to that of the prevailing culture than those held historically by the church. And I want to, in, in the main part of this lecture, to look at these two in turn. And I'll call them the new liberalism and the new uh, conservatism, although, as we'll see, neither of them are actually new uh, at all. Uh, so first, the new liberalism. The old liberalism had its roots in the radical biblical criticism of the 19th century. Old liberals doubted uh, core Christian doctrines like the incarnation, Christ's death and resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, the authority of scripture, justification by faith, the day of judgment, the sovereignty of God, and so on and so forth, the sort of things that we read in the creeds. 
the new liberalism is actually orthodox on these things. New liberals will gladly tick the boxes of the church creeds and the doctrinal basis of the evangelical alliance, and they know their Bibles well. They're liberal on, not on what we might call the core beliefs of Christianity, but, but on ethics. They would argue that ethical issues are in the category of what Paul and passages like 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 or Romans 14 called disputable matters. And disputable matters are things on which Bible-believing Christians can legitimately disagree whilst remaining in fellowship with one another. If you like, they're in the same category as debates about the timing and amount of water to be used in baptism, the modus operandi of the Lord's Supper, the sequence of events around the return of Christ, uh, forms of church government, uh, and the place of Israel, for example. Now, I actually see this view as a revival of what in a previous generation was called situation ethics. And situation ethics is a Christian ethical theory that was principally developed in the 1960s by the then Episcopal priest, Joseph Fletcher. Fletcher taught Christian ethics at Episcopal Divinity School, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and at Harvard Divinity School from 1944 to 1970, and he wrote 10 books and hundreds of articles, book reviews, and translations. Situation ethics basically states that all other moral principles can be cast aside in certain situations if love is best served, as theologian Paul Tillich says, or once put it, love is the ultimate law. The moral principles Fletcher was specifically referring to were the moral codes of Christianity, and the type of love he was referring to uh, was agape love. Fletcher believed that in forming an ethical system based on love, he was best expressing the notion of love thy neighbor, which Jesus taught in the Gospels. So he believed there were no absolute laws other than the law of agape love, meaning that all the other laws are only guidelines about how to achieve this love and could be broken if an alternative action would result in more love. So in order to establish his thesis, he employed a number of very famous examples of situations in which it might be justified, for example, to administer euthanasia, to commit adultery, to steal, to tell a lie, and so on and so forth. Uh, what we might call hard cases. But in effectively divorcing agape love from moral law, Fletcher was steering a subtly different path from that of Jesus Christ. Jesus did indeed say, Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, that the most important commands in the Old Testament law were love of God and neighbor, quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, respectively. In fact, he said these two commandments summed up the whole of Old Testament law. Furthermore, he criticized the Pharisees for obeying the less important parts of the law, tithing herbs like mint and cumin, uh, whilst neglecting the more important matters of justice, mercy, and uh, faithfulness in Matthew 23. 
But he also said that anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. And he reproved the Pharisees by saying that they should have practiced the latter, in other words, important commandments, without neglecting the former, uh, lesser commandments. Certainly there's no place in the Gospels where Jesus implies that those commandments which deal with the shedding of innocent blood and sexual immorality, numbers six and seven of the ten commandments, which are, you could read, that they should be disobeyed. By contrast, he exhorts his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount to go beyond the mere legalities of you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, to embody the very spirit of love which undergirds them. Not only no murder or adultery, but no hate or lust either. It's this more exacting moral standard that also underlies the ethical teaching in the epistles. As Christians were exhorted to be imitators of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1. imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1 and 2, to walk as Christ walked, 1 John 2.6, and to abstain from sinful desires, 1 Peter 1.11. In short, we're to live by uh, what is called the law of Christ, to love one another as he's loved us. And the love of Jesus means obedience to Jesus. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. In fact, Jesus famously answered one of the devil's temptations in the wilderness by quoting from Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Note, every word. So whilst we may say that there are situations when choosing not to shed innocent blood or to carry out a sexually immoral act requires great grace, courage, restraint and self-sacrifice, there are not situations where one may choose to murder or to do something sexually immoral and claim to be acting in love. If Christ had been directly tempted in such a way, and indeed he must have been if he was tempted in every way, just as we are, we can imagine him answering to such a temptation as he did in the wilderness by saying, it is written, you shall not murder, you shall not commit uh, adultery. By my reading, situation ethics is actually a distortion of biblical teaching. It is, in short, heresy but it is a heresy that is very much alive and well amongst liberal British evangelicals in the 21st century, I would submit. Now, interestingly, Joseph Fletcher later identified himself as an atheist and was active in the Euthanasia Society of America and the American Eugenics Society and was one of the signatories to the Humanist Manifesto. When he started out, his position was barely distinguishable from orthodoxy. But he finished up in a very different place altogether. But this is exactly what happens when we define love in a different way from the way it is defined in the Bible, when we put our own meaning into it. So the new liberalism. Now next, uh, the new conservatism. The new conservatives are suspicious of ethics for another reason. They think it undermines grace and distracts from the preaching of the gospel. 
They also fear that it leads to, to legalism. They want to place emphasis quite rightly on the fact that salvation is a gift that we cannot earn. Salvation is through God's grace alone and received by faith alone, as we read earlier, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So he, he teaches the same thing five times in the, in the scope of just two verses. Uh, of course, then there's Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. And these, of course, are, are some of the great biblical truths rediscovered by the reformers, and all of us would say to them a hearty uh, amen. But my concern is that if we emphasize this aspect of salvation without reference to the rest of Scripture, we can risk an imbalance in the opposite direction. Let me explain what I mean. Let me first dispel any doubt that I'm in any way attempting to undermine the absolute centrality of the cross and the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The idea of substitutionary atonement, that Christ died in our place for our sins, is absolutely central to both Old and New Testaments. It underlies the Passover, the Jewish sacrificial system, temple worship, the Day of Atonement, and it's perhaps nowhere spelt out more clearly than in Isaiah 53, the last of the four servant songs written 700 years before Christ was crucified, uh, but also in anticipation of it prophetically. Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later in the chapter we're told, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. For the transgression of my people he was punished. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities, for he bore the sin of many. In the same way, substitutionary atonement is the central teaching of the New Testament. Paul teaches uh, in Romans, 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, that Christ died for us, and also that he died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians 1. Jesus describes his own ministry as giving his life as a ransom for many. And Peter says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ, Paul tells Timothy, gave himself as a ransom for all people. The writer of Hebrews adds that Christ died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the old covenant. Peter sums it all up by saying that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And then to further unpack this whole theme, the New Testament explains substitutionary atonement with four main metaphors. Firstly is the, the metaphor of the altar of sacrifice. Christ is the sacrificial lamb whose blood is shed 
in our place. It's we who deserve to die, but Christ substituted himself uh, instead. Second is the slave market. Christ paid the redemption price that we could not pay in order to free us from bondage. He bore the cost for us. Third is the law court. Christ is our justification. That is, he took the punishment that we deserved in order that we might not be condemned. And fourth is the metaphor of relationship. Christ's death on our behalf brings reconciliation after our unilateral abandonment of God. Like any metaphor, each of these illustrations provides a picture of what actually happened when Jesus died on the cross in our place. But in each case, he did what we in our weakness and sin were unable to do. He did it for and in place of us. Jesus, through dying on the cross, took the wrath and the judgment that our sins deserved. And because he's taken that wrath and judgment in our place, we receive mercy and are thereby forgiven. Now these things are all givens, the foundation from which we begin. But my real concern is that in emphasizing grace, conservative British evangelicals have fallen into what the German wartime Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer termed cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. I remember reading this book as a teenager and it had a, a proud, profound effect on me, so I was most interested to see that Mike Ovey had picked it up in an address to those at the GAFCON conference in Nairobi in Kenya. And what Bonhoeffer says is this, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. What does this cheap grace look like? Well, Bonhoeffer points especially to two things that mark out what he calls cheap grace from real grace. Firstly, cheap grace is without repentance. And secondly, cheap grace is a grace we bestow upon ourselves. In other words, it's a grace we give each other when we see fit rather than according to the pattern of God. Now, it's my conviction that the current misunderstanding about grace amongst some evangelicals results from a lack of understanding of the true nature of repentance and faith. And that furthermore, this misunderstanding of the true nature of repentance and faith is built on a failure to appreciate the holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, and the reality and necessity of judgment. I believe it also explains the discomfort many evangelicals feel with the kind of questions the new atheists are raising about the character of God in questions around the problem of suffering, uh, the eternal destiny of unbelievers, God's acts of judgment in the Old Testament, and so on. If questions about, for example, the slaughter of the Amorites 
make us feel really uncomfortable, it might actually be that we've not yet properly understood holiness, sin, and judgment. Now, Scripture tells us that both repentance and faith are themselves gifts of God's grace. He enables us to repent and have faith because we're incapable of doing it on our own. But what is the nature of this repentance and faith? I think that's the key question here. So let's consider repentance and faith. Repentance is much more than saying sorry or being genuinely remorseful about our sin. It involves an act of turning from sin to obedience. We leave our former life behind and follow in Jesus' footsteps. He becomes our Lord and our Master. Furthermore, it's a lifelong orientation, an ongoing, lifelong turning from sin in response to God's word. The parable of the sower is not just about conversion. It addresses our ongoing, lifelong response to God's word. It's not just about starting off well, but persevering through both hardship and temptation. John the Baptist, at the beginning of his public ministry in Luke 3, tells uh, those who've come to be baptized by him to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. When they ask him what he means, he outlines specific steps of obedience that each group uh, must take. He knows their hearts. He tells the crowd, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. He says to the tax collectors, don't collect any more than you're required to. He tells the soldiers, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Jesus takes a very similar approach. To the rich young ruler, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. To the healed cripple by the pool of Bethesda, he says, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. What could be worse than being a cripple for several decades lying beside a pool? Well, there is something worse actually. To the woman caught in the act of adultery, he says, leave your life of sin. This is after these folk have received his blessing. So to say sorry and then to continue uh, in sin is not repentance, it's actually presumption. In the same way, faith is more than mere belief more than mere intellectual assent to a doctrinal uh, checklist. It is trusting obedience. And in the passage that we just read earlier, James tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. Demons, however, do not possess saving faith. They do not trust and obey. And as evangelicals, we're quick to assert that we're saved by faith alone, but in fact the only verse in the Bible which uses the two words faith and alone together 
James 2.24, appears at first appearance to say the very opposite. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Of course, this does not mean in any sense that we contribute anything to our salvation. We're powerless to do anything to save ourselves. But nonetheless, the evidence of genuine faith is a changed life, actions. James gives the examples of Abraham and Rahab who demonstrated the genuineness of their faith by what they did. They were, we're told, considered righteous for what they did. If we were in any doubt, James summarizes it for us. Faith without deeds is dead. The faith heroes of Hebrews 11, who are held up to us as examples, all demonstrated their faith through what they did. Abel offered a sacrifice. Noah built an ark. Abraham left his home. Joseph gave instructions about his bones and where they were to be buried. Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Rahab welcomed the spies. Gideon conquered kingdoms, and so on and so forth. Each one demonstrated their faith by what they did, and they did these things at considerable personal risk. The Apostle Paul's letters are full of the same principle. His letters are full of ethical instruction. Because these things are true about Christ and his work, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming in judgment, your justification, your predestination, so on and so forth. Because these things are true about Christ and his work, therefore, do this and don't do that. That's the pattern in virtually every epistle. He talks to the Thessalonians about their work produced by faith and their labor prompted by love. He prays that the Colossians will bear fruit in every good work. He tells Titus that, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He tells the Romans that they are called to the obedience that comes from faith in the first and last chapter of that book. In fact, the books that most emphasize that we are saved by grace through faith, Galatians and Ephesians, from which we quoted earlier, also demonstrate that this faith is evidenced by action. In Galatians, we're told that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Not a feeling, but an action. Ephesians tells us that we're saved by grace and not by works, in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, but then that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The Apostle John tells us in his first epistle that those who continue to sin have neither seen Christ nor known him. The Apostle Peter exhorts his readers, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
And nowhere is this principle of faith as obedient trust more evident than in the Gospels themselves. Jesus says to those who call him Lord but do not do his Father's will, I never knew you. The difference between the man who built his house on the sand and the other who built it on the rock is simply this. Both heard Jesus' words, but only one put them into practice. The exacting commands of the Sermon on the Mount, going right as they do, cutting to the heart of our innermost motivations, are intended to be obeyed. They're not there solely to convict us of sin. Now, of course, obedience to Christ is impossible. It's only possible by God's grace through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. But Christians are nonetheless called to obey him. In fact, the heart of the Great Commission, sadly, so often distorted into an exhortation merely to evangelize, is to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's what the Great Commission is. Because God intends us to grow into full maturity in Christ. Consistent with this, the writer of Hebrews calls his readers to leave aside what he calls the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. They're instead to become acquainted with the teaching about righteousness by taking solid food, training themselves to distinguish good from evil. It's about actions, trusting obedience as the evidence of genuine faith. Now, as a clear corollary of this teaching, what follows from it, we're told that a life without demonstrable evidence of faith through a changed life is valueless. It's actually evidence of non-regeneration, if you like. So in Galatians 5, in the passage on the fruit of the Spirit, Paul warns that those who exhibit the, what he calls the acts of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, faction and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like, he says. Those who exhibit these acts of the flesh, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In much the same manner, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 tells us, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation tells us that the dead will be judged, chapter 20, verse 12, according to what they have done. In case there are any doubt about this, it adds in the very next chapter that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. It's pretty 
unambiguous. Outside the holy city, chapter 22, will be those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Uh, he goes on to say, they will not partake in the tree of life. The book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 10, that if we deliberately keep on sinning in this habit of habitual sin, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now these are very serious warnings, aren't they? And they underline the even greater seriousness, I think, of false teaching that leads people astray and does not confront them with these things that are in Scripture. Jesus, for example, in the letters to the seven churches, calls the church of Thyatira to repentance over something quite interesting. Tolerating that woman Jezebel, who by her teaching misleads my servants into sexual immorality. Repentance over tolerating false teaching that's leading people astray. Sex outside marriage, of course, is uh, viewed very seriously in Scripture, but false teaching which leads people into sexual sin is viewed even more seriously. And warnings about the affirmation and endorsement of sexual immorality are very strong. Second Peter 2 and Jude are very poignant examples of that. Those who lead little ones astray, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, like those they mislead are in great danger. And this is why it's so important for us as believers to exercise godly discipline within our churches for their own sakes as well as for those they might mislead or have already <coughs> misled. Now, um, when we raise these uncomfortable issues in the church, then often the response uh, is uh, not to judge. But the Bible's very clear that in the case of sexual immorality or false teaching, it's actually our responsibility to exercise uh, godly discipline, or in other words, disobedience not to do so. Now, I began this talk by making reference to the issues of abortion, euthanasia, and homosexual practice, and the wide variety of views that exist about them in the evangelical church in Britain. I perhaps could have said similar things about covetousness, uh, self-absorption, pornography, pride, overeating, cowardice, jealousy, drunkenness, uh, lack of generosity, other sins which uh, are arguably uh, endemic in British churches but which you very, very seldom hear addressed from the pulpit. But there's something, I would put it to you, particularly pernicious about the triad of idolatry, sexual immorality and the shedding of innocent blood. They were the particular besetting sins of the nations Israel displaced from the Promised Land. And they were the specific sins that also led to Israel's own downfall in the Old Testament. 
the southern kingdom of Judah, we're told, fell to Babylon ultimately because King Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. How it might be asked, does God view a nation like Britain, which has presided over almost 8 million abortions? What's more vulnerable and innocent than the baby in the womb? We're told uniquely to flee sexual immorality because it's a sin against a person's own body, 1 Corinthians 6, that being sanctified involves avoiding sexual immorality. Innocent blood, sexual immorality. But Romans 1 tells us that both sexual immorality and the shedding of innocent blood have their roots actually in idolatry. Francis Schaeffer, I think, very perceptively said that the idols of the West are personal peace and affluence in his book, How Then Shall We Live? One might add uh, personal autonomy, the pursuit of radical personal autonomy uh, as an idol of the West, that sense of self-entitlement uh, that we exhibit. Now, given that our idols are the things that we most desire, it's a very small step that, sadly, we perhaps don't have time to unpack in great detail now, to see how both sexual immorality and the shedding of innocent blood have their roots in our relentless pursuit of both affluence and personal peace. In other words, a life uncumbered by the burden uh, of caring for others. Anything that stands in the way of achieving these goals, be it sexual fidelity, unborn children, dependent relatives, or whatever, can be legitimately sacrificed in the pursuit of these particular goals or idols. All of which should drive us back to the foot of the cross, to the one who gave everything to reconcile us to God and who calls us to carry his cross today, accepting joyfully the suffering and ridicule that a life of genuine repentance and trusting obedience brings, being faithful to the hard truths as well as the easier ones. We're called as believers, we're called as Christians to walk in the footsteps of Christ, to be holy, to be imitators of God, to live lives of love. We're called to be obedient, not just in those areas where the world applauds us, but also in those where we arouse the world's hostility. We're called to an obedience that surpasses the mere legalities of the old covenant to fulfill the very spirit of new covenant love of which they are a mere shadow. We're called not to embrace a cheap grace without repentance and self-bestowed, but to receive God's costly grace that only he can give. We're called to a repentance that doesn't just say sorry, but actively turns away from sin. We're called to a faith that's not mere intellectual assent, but trusting costly obedience. We're called 
to carry the cross, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another as he has loved us because this is the law of Christ. We're called to live holy and godly lives, lives set apart to show his character and display his fruit as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And we're called to all of these things by the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and became obedient to death on a cross that we might be reconciled to him for all eternity. Thank you, Peter, for that tremendous challenge. What about the argument that um, if you concentrate on these ethical issues, you put people off the gospel, that you know, if they become Christians, then we can get them right on those ethical issues. But if we, if we, if we take a stand, a strong stand on moral issues, people will uh, be put off the gospel. I don't think we can separate our responsibility on the one hand to be preaching the good news of the gospel and calling people to repentance and faith and our calling to, to be imitators of Christ and God to live holy lives by the power of his spirit. Um, the whole question of how it applies to public <coughs> policy is a more complex one, but what I'd say is that I think we cannot be just preaching ethics without preaching the gospel. We have to be standing for God's moral principles and preaching the gospel together and demonstrating it uh, in our lives. But I think when it comes to public policy, there is a broader responsibility for Christians, particularly in a democracy where in a sense we're all responsible and uh, answerable before God to do what we can to ensure that there are laws on the statute books which are just and fair and which protect vulnerable people from exploitation and abuse. So I'd, I'd see our work in public policy as being part of our witness in, in Jeremiah's words, if you like, seeking the good of the city in which we're we're placed. So our commitment to uh, justice, to speak up for those who have no voice, is part of, but not the whole of, our Christian commitment. But I think that these messages are far more likely to be heard if they're coming from a community uh, which demonstrates the unity and the truth of the gospel and the love that Jesus Christ himself showed. Thanks for your um, identification of the churchly problem here. I think it's something that really, really needs to be said, that uh, this terrible bill did not just happen. There are reasons within the church. There are disease, theological disease, that has brought that about. And you rightly pointed out the, uh, it has different names, New Covenant Theology, Sonship, uh, different names of what most would call a, a new antinomianistic uh, idea whereby we don't really have to follow God's law. So thanks very much for doing that. I would just want to add one thing to that. 
um, something that I've kind of been working on is uh, something I would call the missional movement. And that by that I don't at all mean being obedient to the Great Commission. I mean a, a series of theologies and methodologies uh, whereby, and the, the key feature here is to be contextualized, uh, to be relevant to the culture. And in these circles, cultural um, contextuality and relevance are all, you know, all pervasive. That's what's important. And if that's the definition of being obedient to the Great Commission, if that's what being obedient entails of this relevance, then of course, what you know, uh, those very issues that you mentioned disappear entirely off of the teaching agenda of uh, homosexuality and abortion and so forth. And they're to replace often with left-wing sort of social action stuff. And, and that's new in evangelicalism. It's new. But um, I, I think it's, I wonder if you've noticed that in your travels and uh, if you'd have anything to add there. Yes, I think, I mean, this is a big issue that comes up in mission. Do we contextualize? In other words, do we identify with the truth that people believe in order to get alongside them? Or do we confront error? And I think if we look at the approach of the apostles to this, I think the thing is they did both. And if we look, for example, at um, Paul in Acts 17, he goes to Athens, he wanders around, he understands the culture, he finds something in the culture that he can identify and use in talking to this people, it's the altar to the unknown God, and he begins by establishing um, dialogue through identification. We need to contextualise, identify, get along people, alongside people, serve them and all the rest, but then we need to be uh, leading them from the truth they know, if you like, to the truth that they don't. And then we need to be bringing it back to the person of Christ. And I think there is a real temptation for the church just to stay in the safe areas of identification and never get to preaching the gospel. And yet the other danger is that if we try and preach the gospel message but without having any relationship with people it's equally not going to be heard so I think it is contextualization confrontation <coughs> preaching the gospel all these things have to be part of our witness it's not um, you know either or I was at a meeting at Lambeth Palace recently and there was a Church of England bishop who will remain nameless but he made a rather interesting statement. He said, healing the sick, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting those in prison. If that's not the gospel, I don't know what is. And uh, I couldn't get my question in uh, during the time when questions were being taken. But I went up to him afterwards and said, now, I agree with you, I couldn't agree more that all these things are part of Christian witness. But isn't actually the gospel about preaching the good news of God's reconciliation with us through Christ's death and resurrection? And of course, when, when Christ um, 
you know, in that famous passage in Luke 4 when he goes into the synagogue and he's given the scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, he starts with the preaching of good news and then he talks about the healing and deliverance and justice and so on. And all of these things are part of a whole, but the preaching of the gospel takes absolute preeminence over everything else because what good is it to, to heal, clothe, visit, deliver a person if you're not dealing with the fundamental problem that they have. So I, I think it's that we're called as a church to, be, to follow in the footsteps of Christ and do things as he did. And if we're doing that, then we won't be drawn into, you know, into one or the other extreme. Can I thank you for your analysis? And um, I'm sure it's right, but uh, and can I commend Steve, um, Mike Ovey's talk at GAFCON and um, William Taylor's Bible reading? It's on um, gafcon.org. Uh, really, it's uh, excellent because I have to have the privilege of being there. And it seems to me you're right that the key thing, you know, is the loss of the doctrine of sin. But on the other, with liberal theology, but on the other hand, with conservative theology, I think. Um, and asking whether you would agree, and then what can you do about it, that part of it is simply an unwillingness to be in a minority of one in public places. People know everything, and they're not taught. I mean, the conformity test, you know, you probably know the ASH conformity experiment. When two people were actually um, uh, candidates and not actors, um, they uh, didn't conform uh, to the rest. Uh, when you're on your own, it's very difficult. And uh, my wife, she's been a doctor, and you, you know that. When you're on your own, you, you have a much harder task. And you have to not be like Peter in the courtyard. I mean, that is the normal reaction, that you will just actually deny Christ or keep quiet. And uh, it's a question of teaching people and encouraging people and helping people actually to be in a minority of one. Now, I don't think there's any difference whether you're in the workplace or in the church. Uh, it's just a simple human reality. And, and the Holy Spirit does give you strength. But on the other hand, we need to teach people and help people. Have you any ideas on that? Having been in the situation of being in a minority of one on several occasions, I think part of it is just faithful Bible teaching about the fact that Standing for Christ when you're in a very small minority is actually part of the, and, and facing opposition for it is part of the normal Christian life. I think it's faithful teaching about those believers in Scripture who've been in that very situation and what we can learn from their example of faith. So you know, the, the Daniels, the Elijahs, the Gideons, the, and so on and so forth, that this, this is what we're called to do. It also then has to be worked out in the, you know, in the cauldron of experience, if you like, in those moments where you say, oh dear, this is where um, I have to make a stand, either in what I say or what I do or what I refuse to do, and it will create difficulty and tension and uh, there may be repercussions for me in terms of losing something, whether it's reputation or a friendship or a job or, or whatever, and um, to encourage one another to, to do those things. And I, I know in my own life that I've been hugely helped 
by both the biblical examples, the stories of people in history who did these things, but also seeing living examples uh, of people who've stood up uh, to do things. And when I've witnessed it, I've thought, goodness, that's what I believe too. I should be doing the same and following in their same footsteps. So I, I think it's about both teaching and example, really. And I, and I think a very good way of doing that is, is for us to be sharing uh, testimonies of, if you like, making a stand, refusing by faith, or, you know, as Hebrews 11 puts it, in order to encourage and build up and stir up one another to take similar stands wherever God has placed us. There are some people, obviously, who are naturally, instinctively and giftedly more able to do that than others. And that's why uh, getting groups together or two or three people, I mean, have you got any, any suggestions for what we should all be doing um, in trying to mobilize people this day and age? Because I think there are so many problems down the tracks that are going to come front us in this country, which um, actually quite frightening, really, for a host of reasons. Um, and I, I just think that uh, two are always better than one. Uh, Three-foot cord is not easily broken and mm. so forth. Yes, I, I mean, I agree. I think it's stirring up one another to love and good works and twos and threes and, and groups. But we need to be very clear about the challenges that are coming and to ensure that those in our congregations know what to expect and what's going to happen and what the costs could well be in future. But to understand that this is all part of the normal Christian life. And then, you know, encouraging one another to, to take those stands. But, I, you know, I think it's, it's teaching and, and example. I love Christian biographies for that very reason. Um, because of the, that effect they have on you. You know, you want to follow in the footsteps of these people who've gone before and have been there and done that. I think what Christian Institute is doing in highlighting many of these cases. I, I, I think it always it discourages me when I see people seeing what happens to others and then being intimidated into silence or not putting their heads above the parapet. It's We should be doing exactly the opposite, taking courage from it, in the same way that when Paul was in prison, those who weren't in prison took courage and preached the gospel even more firmly. They said, well, if you preach the gospel like Paul and all that happens to you is you end up in prison, then what am I worried about? <laughs> and I think that's more the attitude that we need to be uh, you know, taking and exhibiting. But we do want to say a deep thank you to you for your magnificent talk, your great challenge, and for the way you've been able to answer questions for us tonight. Thank you very much indeed.